Well, 10 years ago, The Atlantic published an article saying that one in five Americans suffer from anxiety at least once a year. It's roughly, roughly, back then, 40 million Americans. And this is before, like, this is before two contentious election cycles and before the pandemic and before January 6th and before George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and so many others. It's before Buffalo and Uvalde before, well, during climate change, but now it's, we know even more, and before Russia's invasion of Ukraine. It's before a lot of things, one in five Americans suffering annually from anxiety. And I would say anecdotal evidence, just as my life as a pastor, I would say that that number is rising in the last 10 years. And that article in The Atlantic doesn't, doesn't just speak about anxiety in general, like as a world issue, it is a world issue, but it specifically hones in on America as being particularly an anxious nation. And, and part of what it posits that makes us an anxious nation is that we've, frankly, we've had it good for so long, or at least we think we have. Uh, whether or not we think this consciously, whether or not you would admit this to yourself, I think part of our collective unconscious, to get very Jungian on us, uh, suggests that we typically, as American people, we typically believe that life should work out for us. Our cultural narrative is one that most problems we come across ought to be able to be solved with enough money or time or technology, right? And as Apple tries to sell us, things ought to just work ought to just work. I say ought to because nothing ever works all the time, right? And so so whereas, whereas the majority of the world out there is used to the imminent possibility of war or death or loss of work or famine or other unpredictable circumstances, we think that we are not used to that. And as we come to grips with our own checkered past of shameful treatment of women and minorities, and as we face increasing division over public policy, it's causing many of us to experience like the ground that we're standing on, metaphorically at least, is giving way. That what we once maybe assumed was solid is not so solid anymore. And in that context, the context we're currently living in, like where do we turn? Where do we look to for help? I, I, I would bet you most of us wouldn't think, I know where I'm going to turn. I'm going to turn to a 2,000-year-old letter written in Greek to a small church in Macedonia. Right? Isn't that where everybody's looking? No, that's probably not. Um, and yet, I think, if you've been on this journey through the book of Philippians with me, I think what we are beginning to discover is that Paul's letter to the Philippians is surprisingly relevant to our own situation. Like us, the Philippians lived under um, the banner of what was, at that time, the most powerful empire or nation in the world. Um, we, we could relate to that, sort of. Uh, like us, they lived in a time when technology and transportation and education were progressing at such a pace that they thought, certainly, like, we'll have all the problems figured out here in 10 or 20 years. And yet, also like, like us, they lived in a social structure where gender and social class and religion and ethnicity put people on a varied social ladder that seemed impossible in reality to scale. 
And unless you were one of the few privileged and powerful, your life was nasty, brutish, and short. Uh, to, to quote the famous book, uh, Gunsterns and Steel, is that, yeah. The Philippians knew about anxiety. It was just part of their life. And it was into this world that Paul and Timothy came proclaiming the gospel, which means good news of Jesus. And news that the God of the universe had humbled himself and come to the earth, taking up life as a human being and sacrificing himself in order to rescue the world. Now, in the empire ruled by egotistical, self-proclaimed deity, Lord Caesar, the Lord Jesus, the actual Son of God, humbled himself, taking on human flesh and serving other people. Now, the Philippians lived under the rule of Emperor Nero, a man who was willing to murder thousands and thousands of people who he thought just might be a threat to his power. But to the Philippians, Paul told about this other Lord who gave up his power, who gave up his life in order to rescue people. The Philippians lived in a world where the only hope of justice was for the elite. And to this group of folks, Paul wrote of Jesus who promised justice in the last day when the untouchable elites would have their just desserts. Like nobody gets away with it forever. And where the lowly and oppressed would be raised to new life and glory. So this is all really good news to the Philippians. Paul's message of Jesus was filled with hope and people's lives were beginning to be transformed Women and men and boys and girls, Romans and Greek, Greek slaves and free soldiers and civilians, Jews and pagans, this massive, diverse group of people came to follow Jesus, and they became a diverse community, this little church in Philippi. At the time that Paul writes the letter that I'm preaching through, he had gone, some years had gone by since he had visited and planted that church. And he'd been arrested by the Romans for preaching the same gospel he preached to them. And the people in the Philippian church were anxious. The empire under Nero was tightening its grip. And so Paul writes this letter as a way of encouraging the church. And he reminds us that God is for us and he encourages us to keep our eyes on Jesus, who's the example of faith and the source of our power to live it out. And this evening, we're going to pick up the text in the second chapter of Philippians, and it's just two verses. I have, I'm just going to tell you what I've done just now. I have intentionally, I have intentionally set us up to think about how this gospel addresses anxiety. Because this passage I'm about to read is a source of anxiety to lots of people I've talked with. In fact, these two sentences in the book of Philippians has caused unnecessary anxiety to people over the years, and my hope, my hope is that the rest of our time together, I'm going to show you how Paul's words are actually really good news, okay? So here's the passage, Philippians 2, 12 and 13. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who's at work within you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
Most of you, unless you have some sort of injury or something happened at birth, most of you have two feet, right? And I'm assuming that most of you, most of you probably have the toes on each of those feet. And if something happens to one of your feet, say you stub the the toe, the great toe on your left foot, what foot gets your attention? That, that left foot, right? The one that you stub the toe, right? If that's the one in pain, you probably don't think at that moment, I am so thankful for my right foot. It's such a glorious foot, it doesn't hurt me at all. No, you're thinking about the painful left foot. It's the negative experience that absorbs your thought. In our passage this evening, we have two verses, verses 12 and 13. The second verse is clearly good news. God is at work both within you to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's awesome. But that's not the part that usually gets our attention in these two verses. In fact, I've never had someone from a church or from the community come up and say, hey, pastor, I got, a, got one of those questions. A lot of people like, like to do that, by the way. Like, there's this verse that's been bugging me. Is it okay if I ask you a question? No one has ever said like, hey, break that down for me. Like God, at work with you. They never ask about that. You know what they ask about? So I'm really nervous about my salvation because of this verse that says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. This is the one that causes the anxiety of the two. And people want to know, what does it mean to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? I mean, I thought Paul and Jesus, we're all about the gospel of grace. So what does it now mean that if I have to work out my salvation with fear and trembling? And then they posit, well, how do I know if enough is enough? And what if I'm not secure in my salvation? And now I am a mess of just worry, worry, worry. Well, let's take a look at what this passage means and doesn't mean. So let's talk about salvation. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Oftentimes, in an effort to make the gospel, which, by the way, took four gospels and the New Testament letters to to present to us, along with all the prophets and the stuff before, I mean, it takes the Bible to really flesh out the gospel. But in an effort to make the gospel easier to understand, followers of Jesus simplify things oftentimes. Maybe you've heard this before. They say something to the effect that God created the world and he put humans in charge of it and humans rebelled against God. And since that moment, they've lived in sin and in opposition to God and in opposition to human flourishing. I added that one. I usually don't hear that part, but it's good. (laughs) Unable to fix this problem on their own, God shows mercy and grace by coming to rescue us in the person of Jesus. Jesus gives his life as a ransom or atonement to pay for the debt we've incurred by our rebellion, and even though we're still guilty before God because we sin, we're declared justified righteous before God. Through faith in Jesus, then, humans are able to be in right relationship with God. That's all true, by the way. It's a nice simplification of the entire Bible. And sometimes people say that when we put our faith in Jesus, that we are saved or that we have found salvation, and by that we mean forgiveness and eternal life. You've heard that before. And if that were true, exactly as I said it, 
then what Paul writes in this passage this evening that we're looking at would be and should be a cause for anxiety. Because if we have to work out our salvation, the terms of our standing before God and eternal destiny, then we are in trouble. Is anyone here doing a great job at working out your salvation with fear and trembling? You don't need to, I'm just, I know. <laughs> Me too. I mean, who can know how much is enough or what constitutes good work? Ah, so many questions. But that's not what this passage is about. You can breathe, it's okay. That's not what this passage is about because that's not what salvation is about. Let me just break that down because you're like, what is this guy? I might need to walk out of this room. He's scaring me. Okay, the term that Paul uses most for being in right relationship with God is justification. That's what that term means. And justification is different from salvation. Justification is forensic, that means kind of law court kind of language. It's a, it's a courtroom metaphor, and it has to do with specifics of our standing before God. Jesus justifies us through his work and our faith in him, and that's not up for grabs. Like when Jesus justifies you and declares Frank Hodge as righteous before God, from that time until the end of time, when God sees Frank Hodge, he sees a man who is justified. And Frank is secure in Christ no matter what. Once you're justified before God, that doesn't go away. You can say amen, that's pretty good. Amen, okay. Um, it is a declaration made by Jesus about you. And while you could argue that Jesus might be wrong, my money's on Jesus because he like knows everything and is God. So, so when Jesus declares you justified, that's it. So if you've placed your faith in Jesus and gone through the waters of baptism, you are justified before God. His grace prevails upon you. It is not something that is tied to your working or to your behavior. It's not tied to that. It's just... It's a declaration over you. It's secure, and that's fantastic news. Salvation, on the other hand, unlike justification, is a, is a word that has more of a narrative scope. And it occurs, you'll notice in Scripture, that it occurs in all three tenses. What I mean by that is that sometimes you'll read, I've been saved, or you've been saved. And then sometimes we'll hear a gospel writer or Paul say something like, you're being saved. And then he'll say something like, you will be saved. And so salvation has this, this narrative arc to it. It is all-encompassing of time. Salvation is not just a thing that happens. It's a new reality, new life, new social structures that work, uh, new hearts that work correctly, rightly ordered emotions, we, the spiritual writers call that rightly ordered affections, how we, uh, our disposition toward things. Restored relationships between us and God and us and creation and us and each other and us and ourselves because a lot of us look in the mirror and we don't always like what we see or who we are. We feel shame. So in every sense of the word, if you are justified before God through Jesus, you have been saved. You are being saved, and you will be saved. Justification is something that's declared over us that changes our status forever. It's secure. 
Justification is almost always talked about in the Bible as something that has happened in Christ. The follower of Jesus has been justified in Christ. Salvation is the life that justification unlocks. Salvation is the life that justification unlocks. So to work out salvation is not to work for salvation. It's not to work to earn salvation. It's not even to work 50% and God does 50%. That's actually a well-known heresy in Christian tradition. Gordon Fee says it well. This is not a text dealing with people getting saved or saved people persevering. Rather, it is an ethical text dealing with how saved people, justified people, live out their salvation in the context of the believing community and the world. So the way I see it, this is, I'm not quoting Fee anymore, the way I see it to work out our salvation is to practice salvation. And I don't mean that like, like, like I, I mean it like um, how you might practice medicine or practice law. Like you don't want the doctor who's, I'm just practicing on you. You want the one who's like really good and is, I'm, I'm practicing medicine on you, right? So we practice salvation in the sense that we live it out. And there's great dignity and responsibility in living out our salvation. It's, it's our purpose, it's our vocation, our calling. It's the mission of every local church. And what I love about local churches is the fact that every one of us has our own little context. We're made up of different people than the church down the street, and they're made up of different people than us. And we all have unique gifts and, and abilities and interests, and it's, it's awesome. And Paul is saying that through faith in Jesus, your future salvation is secure. Now, on that foundation, live it out in the present. Your life makes a difference. So what does this salvation look like that we're supposed to live out with fear and trembling? If Paul is calling us to work it out, to live it out, to practice salvation, then what does that look like? Well, it's more t- stuff than I can possibly say, but one thing is that it's almost always earthy. What I mean by that is that it has implications, salvation has implications on your relationships, on the economy, on ecology, how we relate and interact with creation. It has implications on societies, how they're ordered and structured. And it has nothing to do with a disembodied state. And, and working on our salvation is more than just like, more than just ideas and just theories. It, it's earthy in that it, it has legs. Like, it does stuff. We do stuff when we work out our salvation. Practicing salvation will call us to reevaluate the social structures that we live in, public policy, cultural assumptions that we might have, and ask ourselves, do these things, these beliefs that I hold, do they reflect God's kingdom or something else? So how can we live differently as a witness to others as an alternative option? I want to be very clear here. This is not about us forcing our beliefs down anyone else's throat. It is about those of us who follow Jesus actually practicing our salvation 
and our lives being an alternate maybe to the things that are out there. It's not forcing uh, our way on someone else. Isaiah 43, today's scripture reading, is just one of many texts that gives us a window into salvation. Notice the real, earthy, human implications. But in the immediate context of this passage, um, it's important to live out the vision that Paul gives us right before these two verses. He writes, Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but for the interests of others. In other words, look to Jesus, who emptied himself, who didn't view his equality of God as something to be used to his own advantage. Can I just nerd out for a minute? Like, there's something that you might miss in reading in English, and that is the fact that Paul is not primarily writing about individuals in this passage. His pronouns are in the plural, which you can't really see in English. But when he says, work out your salvation in the Greek sentence, it's all in the second person plural. Y'all, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You all, Church of Philippi, you all, Letter Treats Covenant Church, as a community, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So this isn't like spotlight on Lori Louise or on Titus or on Christy, and then you feel like, I've got to bear the weight of all of that means. And as I look out and I see us as individuals, I see times when I'm up and feeling good, times when I'm depressed, times when I feel rotten, uh, times when I feel disqualified, and I know that you go through those things too, and so if it was always up to the individual, that would be a horrible weight on our shoulders, but when it's the collective, some are up, some are down, some are doing well, some are struggling, some are healthy, some are sick, we as a community work out what it means to follow Jesus together. That's primarily what this passage is saying. He's speaking to the collective, to the church. We're to look at the scriptures as a church and to see where salvation is described, like visions of reconciliation or to a future in which weapons are recycled and bent into implements of farming that we see in the prophets, to a future in which representatives from all ethnicities and cultures Uh, come to reconciliation with each other and with God. A future in which there's economic justice and where power is used to benefit others rather than just the privileged few. It's a future in which we extend the same grace given to us. This is the kind of stuff that we see in the Bible when salvation is described to us. So the church is to, with like, your eyes always work together, but let's pretend they didn't. And like, with one eye, we've got it on scripture, and and we're looking for the vision of what salvation will be like when God's kingdom comes in full. And then with the other eye on the scriptures, with the other one, we look to our local context, and we ask, how can the kingdom break in in the lettered streets, and in Bellingham, and in Washington, and in the U.S., and in the world? And that's why Lettered Streets Covenant Church, you know, we gather for worship that is, we unashamedly, like, root our worship service in the scriptures. I preach out of the scriptures. Uh, We sing songs based on scripture. You you know that, you're here. Um, 
We're rooted in scripture so that we can keep an eye on God's vision for what human flourishing look like. But then we also look with the other's eye to our neighborhood and city and state and world. And so like at Letter Trees, we're like, okay, well, here we are. We have connections with Bellingham Covenant. We know Stephen Shetterly. He's doing all this cool stuff with Afghan refugees. They need a house to be prepared for a family coming at Christmas. 46 of you volunteered. It was a freezing cold, rainy day. Michelle Majors organized that. And you guys transformed a yard and painted a house. And that's the kind of stuff. It's like, okay, God has this vision. We see it in scripture where the foreigner comes and where hospitality of God is shown. Here's a need in our very backyard boom, let's do this. That's why we do what we do. Eye to scripture and an eye to context. We look to our neighbors and ask if God cares about flourishing and community and relationships, then how can we work out our salvation so that it feels like salvation to lonely people and the isolated or the hungry or the you fill in the blank of where the needs are? That's what we're to be about. But just because practicing salvation is communal doesn't mean it's not personal. After all, churches are made up, the collective is made up of individuals. And because of that, personal ethics do matter. Practicing salvation as individuals matters as well. You know, less than a year ago, we walked through the Sermon on the Mount together in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. And I would reference that teaching. If you're wondering, like, what does that look like? Well, like, what personal ethics are you talking about? Like, if we could do some of the Sermon on the Mount as people, I mean, we would be really doing well, right? So just start there. It's Jesus' go-to place. I think it's his, one of his finest teachings in all the Bible. So as individuals, we look to the scriptures with one eye to keep the vision of what salvation looks like before us, and with the other, we look to our personal context. And so we might look to our vocation and ask, how can I live out this role that I'm serving right now? How can I walk that out with integrity? So I see a a lot of students here. Um, Well, you're on summer break, so you just be thinking about this over the summer. You chill. You earned it. But in the fall, your, your vocation in this season of life is to be educated and to be a friend and to be a student and maybe some of you are growing into leadership or athletics or whatever it is. How can you do that with integrity and joy unto, unto God? It's not easy, nor should it be taken for granted that businesses do right by their clients, that employers do right by their employees, that employees work with integrity, uh, the integrity of the boss in their mind or the brand in their mind or the craft, you know, like a respect for the craft if it's a trade. It's not a given that parents are gonna parent intentionally with grace and joy. It should not be assumed that everyone is gonna be a good neighbor or treat people with respect. So those are the kind of things we can ask, like how can I walk out my salvation in a way that honors God. And again, this isn't just to, this isn't at all to earn eternal life or to earn favor with God because through faith, followers of Jesus are justified. You're declared already in good standing with God. Our standing with God never changes. God's love for you never changes. And I I just wanna put the comma on that too. Even if you haven't begun to follow Jesus or you don't even think that's something you wanna do, 
I'm sorry, maybe this offends you. God loves you anyway. (laughs) And that never changes. It's pretty awesome. But salvation is something that affects the way we live. And so we practice salvation with fear and trembling, not because we should be fearful of not doing enough or fearful of losing our salvation, but because of the gravity of the awe and wonder, like that kind of fear uh, before us. It is a holy thing to be granted the role of emissaries to the living God. Like, it, it's, it's a mind trip to think like, man, we sort of represent God in the community. Oh, we don't do a very job with that. You know what I mean? Like, that, that is, oh, that's a little fear and trembling right there. That, that's kind of what it's talking about um, in the scripture. But in case I haven't been clear enough about the dignity and good news that verse 12 gives us, Paul gives us verse 13, so that we would know without a doubt that this work of practicing our salvation is not up to you and your willpower alone. Let me read it again. For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God who is at work in you. He is at work in your will and in your practicing salvation for his good pleasure. God is a God of joy. He is at work in the followers of Jesus because it makes him happy. And I, he is at work in the followers of Jesus because it pleases him. And I don't know if you, you want to close your eyes, or I don't know, but like feel the anxiety release from your scalp and your shoulders. That's where I carry it. Um, maybe yours is other places, your stomach or something. But release, release your should-haves, your could-haves, your doubts, your regrets, Hear the echoes of Philippians 1.6, just the chapter earlier. In that passage, Paul writes, I am confident of this, that the one who began a good work among you will bring it to completion by the day of Christ Jesus. Friends, we're living in anxious times, but from its very beginnings, faith in Jesus is never merely about future security. It's about Jesus securing our future and calling us to practice that salvation in the present. And if you feel like I do, usually a mixture of frustration with my world and then a frustration every time I remember like I'm a part of the problem of the world, then I want to encourage you to come with me to Jesus. Not only will you find forgiveness, but I think the power to make a difference in our community. Lord, we thank you for this good word from your servant, Paul. We thank you for um, the fact that it is good news. And I I just pray uh, for my sisters and brothers and I that, that you would release any unnecessary anxiety that we might carry. Um, Lord, that we would experience your unconditional love for us. That you would capture our hearts and imaginations with a vision for what it looks like to practice salvation in the world that we actually live in, in our actual homes and friendships, social circles, workplaces, school environment, whatever it is, Lord. Help us to continue to get creative and joyful as we walk that out in the world.